Xi has sat down with some of the biggest names in Hollywood, from Sidney Poitier to Meryl Streep to Tom Cruise, and tonight she sits down with us. World-renowned 92nd Street Y film historian Annette Insdorf is here to dish it all. Then, listen in as comedians John Stewart and Michael Schur debate the future of comedy in a polarized America. Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Schoen Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, and the estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metrofocus. I'm Jack Ford. For the past 35 years, the 92nd Street Y has hosted a regular discussion series called Real Pieces, focused on giving New Yorkers an inside look at the biggest movies of our times. Since its inception, the Y Signature Film Series which has featured conversations with actors and directors and early preview screenings of movies not yet released, has been hosted by Annette Insdorf, a world-renowned film historian, author, and academic. Through her time moderating real pieces, her work as a film professor at Yale and Columbia, and her impressive career, Annette has interacted with countless celebrities, including, among many others, Meryl Streep, Sidney Poitier, Al Pacino, Greta Gerwig, Tom Cruise, Martin Scorsese, just to name a very few. And joining us tonight with more on her remarkable life and career is a true New York treasure, the host of the 92nd Street Wise Real Pieces series, Annette Insdorf. Annette, welcome. It's so nice to have you here with us. Pleasure to be with you. This is a fabulous series, and I'm going to get to it in a, in a moment. But let's first let me start with you. How and when did you first develop this deep passion for films? I always loved movies as a child. And because I was born in Paris, uh, when we came to the United States, my father, who didn't speak much English at the time, um, it was from movies that he was learning English and I went to every film I could as a child with him. And the more I did that, the more I realized, especially in my teens, that I didn't simply love the entertainment and the spectacle, but that the, the way that movies were telling stories, and I, I read a lot at the time, I love books, that movies were telling stories in an equally rich way, but I had to watch them differently to understand how visual storytelling was taking place. And then when I got to grad school, doing my PhD in English at Yale, of all places, mm -hmm. um, I realized that I wasn't happy in the PhD program because I was missing something. I, I had the sense that anything I could say about a book, um, a poem, had already been said. Movies, nah, in the 70s, they hadn't yet been discussed to death. So. I uh, started going to the Yale Film Societies every night, the Law School Film Society, the Berkeley Film Society, the Yale Film Society. And I would go twice. Sometimes I would see the film twice in a row at night, back to back, the first time to enjoy 
the second time taking notes to see how the film created my reactions. Oh. And I was in the right place at the right time. Uh, the day that I got my PhD in English, I was hired that afternoon by the art history department at Yale because they had just lost the adjunct professor who was supposed to be teaching two film courses the following year. A lot of it is luck. And also I had I had already taught a seminar on the French New Wave um, as a grad student that had been quite successful. So in I went. Right place, right time. And as a student at Yale, I, I went to so many of those different film societies. They just provided you with wonderful opportunities to sit down and to watch and to learn and to listen and to be moved by these. So let, let's then move ourselves. Um, as I mentioned, it, it taught at Yale, at Columbia, overlapped for a period of time, have written a, a number of books about films. But talk about real pieces. How did that become? How did that come about? Well, I was approached um, around 1979-80 initially when I moved to New York from New Haven um, by the 92nd Street Y. There was John Rusquet, then there was Daniel Stern. I was writing a book at the time about film and the Holocaust, which became my sort of landmark study, Indelible Shadows, Film and the Holocaust, which mm -hmm. is <laughs> there. <laughs> and um, they asked me to talk about a Holocaust film. And at that time, uh, around 1979-80, there weren't that many, shall we say, elevated discussions about film and the Holocaust. And after that, it was quite successful. I co-moderated a series with Michael Webb that dealt with film and politics and history. And I got my own series in 1983 was the first time, Critics on Criticism and Screenwriters. And I realized how much I loved the 92Y audiences, mm. they were literate, curious, affectionate. They were people who already were familiar with a great deal from the other arts, from literature, from poetry, the poetry center at the Y I used to go to on nights. Um, and I was encouraged by a number of different superiors over the years to suggest things that I thought the audience would appreciate in Manhattan of all places. And um, real pieces emerged after a certain time because I didn't want to interview just actors, just screenwriters, just directors, just producers. Um, and I had already done two series where there were no guests. It was just me discussing the work of my books. Um, and with real pieces, I said, let me have free reign to interview whoever I think will be able to help us appreciate and understand cinematic storytelling, how a film was made, what it's supposed to be doing for us. And the first year was exactly, uh, it was 1987, so 35 years ago, yeah. that I did, um, one week was the editor, Ralph Rosenblum, and we showed Annie Hall, mm -hmm. and the producer was David Putnam. I mean, it, it was a fantastic way to engage with not just at that time it wasn't really celebrity oriented right. the idea was to show a really good movie and have someone who played a key role in it answer questions about its gestation its process its meaning 
and so, we so were sort of truly learned and, and and sort of mixing our theater metaphors, but pull back the curtain, if you will, on 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 films. And then the ninety seconds rewind has 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 been for so long so good at these offerings. I had the great good fortune to host some interviews and some panels there uh, a number of years back, including after I'd covered the O.J. Simpson trial, and I interviewed most of the participants of that. And as you said, I was so struck by the the audience and and how engaged and engaging they were. Let me let me ask you a question. This is I'm sure you've been asked this, and I know this is sort of akin to asking a parent about their favorite child. So I won't phrase it that way. But tell, give us um, one or two of your more memorable interviews. Who would you point to? Well, the first time that Sir Ben Kingsley was my guest, he returned afterwards. I was dumbstruck, actually, by how extraordinarily articulate he was. I'm not used to interviewing actors who are more perceptive of their process and able to articulate it than directors and writers, for that matter. And here was Sir Ben Kingsley with just the most beautiful way of expressing what he does as an actor, but also what films can mean in the lives of those who watch them the deep enhancement that can come from that so if i'm if i had to pick only one interview right. to watch again i think that would be the one but i also i've i've been so fortunate um also by the way on that evening ben kingsley um <laughs> he quoted me because i had been on the jury of the berlin film festival with right. him resident right. of the jury and um we did, I, I suggested that we had to have some shared criteria for what makes a film great, mm -hmm. he agreed. So I came up with a proposal that he accepted. And then on stage with me that night, he told my audience, Annette has given us a way to understand what criteria should be. I had said something like, it should be a good story worth the proverbial mm -hmm. price of admission. Number two, it should use the appropriate cinematic language for the tale being told. And number three, and this is the tough one, it should offer some kind of illumination and enhancement of our lives to take with us after the film is over. You know, forgive the corniness, but something that right. might make us a better person. Yeah. yeah. We adopted that. And now he and I'll, I'll, I'll add this because I think you're probably too humble to say this, but I've seen where Sir Ben Kingsley had said since that time, whenever he reviews a script for some potential work for him, he said, I use Annette's three guidelines for me to decide, is this something I want to do? So that, that that's pretty impressive that he has an impact on you and you had an impact on, on him. Let me ask yeah. another thing. Since, since we're, we're talking about New York City, talk a little bit about, um, you know, people always use the term Hollywood just as sort of an overarching term to talk about the film industry. How about New York's impact on the film industry back then and even today? It is huge. I mean, let's just admit, I should, that I am drawn perhaps much more to independent films nurtured by an East Coast sensibility than Hollywood mainstream movies. So I've always gravitated to the films of Sidney Lumet. Mm -hmm. I've shot The Pawnbroker at the 92nd Street Y. Uh, to the films of Woody Allen. He was my guest at least twice, possibly three times. Um, the films of Scorsese, who was my guest early on. And I believe, well, it, it goes further back to Cassavetes. 
um, mm-hmm. whose work I show more in my classes these days at Columbia than at the 92nd Street Y. But Cassavetes was for me the maverick of New York, low mm-hmm. budget indie filmmaking that captured the rhythm, not just of the streets, but the rhythm of our bodies moving through the streets in movies like Shadows, his first feature back around 1959. Um, So I I do believe that one of the reasons real pieces remains exciting for me and hopefully audiences is because we're in New York. Right. And even if I show a foreign film or a Hollywood film, the sensibility we bring to movies it's a little bit sharper and faster mm-hmm. because we are in New York. We are of New York. In many ways, we are New York. Yeah. And that there is so much more I would love to talk with you about. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have the time here, but I want to make sure we come back and continue this conversation. But once again, I want to remind people this this marvelous series, Real Pieces and 92nd Street Y, which does such wonderful work across the board um, and and 35 years and still counting and still being wonderful. And that thank you so much for joining us. We'll look forward for, to talking with you again sometime real soon. You be well now. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Good evening. I'm Rafael P. Roman. As our country becomes more politically and morally divided, the things we find funny seem to be drifting apart as well, leaving questions about what the future of comedy should look like here in the United States. To explore that, we turn to comedians whose own work addresses the most divisive aspects of our society to get their take on whether or not it is still possible to use humor to reach across political lines. Let's listen in on a recent conversation on this topic between Jon Stewart and Michael Shore, two of the most successful television comedians of our era, as part of our ongoing Listening In series with our partners at the 92nd Street Y, one of New York's premier cultural hubs. How can comedians help our society heal, and how can we start enjoying the same jokes regardless of political identity? And is that something that you ever think about? I'm not sure what the same jokes means. I think it means can we find a group that's so out (laughs) that even Republic, now, Generally, that's been Jews. Uh, You know, I think it's that longing for a camaraderie in society that I'm not sure ever existed. I think it may be one of those things to fuzzy nostalgia because I don't recall, and I've been in the business 35 years, almost 40 years, ever being a time where Americans were united in their political ideology and what they thought was funny. No, never happened. Yeah. Uh, I will say this in terms of like how we get back to normal or whatever. Right. Uh, I started working at SNL in, in 98. I, a couple of years later, my friend Rob Carlock left to go to LA. Uh, he was running Weekend Update and I was asked to run Weekend Update mm-hmm. uh, after he left. And I thought, well, this is, sounds fun. Funny, silly news jokes. I can do that. Uh, that was, uh, I took the job on like August 25th, uh, uh, 2001. And my first show of funny, Don't funny Don't spoil it jokes. for everybody. 
I should have said spoiler alert. I blew it. That would have been such a good callback. Um, my first show, my first weekend update for funny, silly news jokes was the 9-11 show. And um, we had a bunch of meetings and we had all, we asked all of the, a lot of the same questions that we've all been asking recently because of the pandemic. Right. How can we get back to normal? Can we, how can we tell jokes? All that sort of stuff. The only thing that we could think of to do was to just do weekend update. Just make a bunch of jokes about whatever was in the news. We bring a couple actors on in silly costumes. We put one foot in front of the other and we trust that this is something that people actually want. The first joke we did on that show in, at a moment of frayed nerves and, and maximum anxiety. By the way, this is also two weeks before anthrax was found in our building. We all had to leave again and go through this all again. Again, in my defense. <laughs> <laughs> so the first joke we told um, was um, the CIA uh, now believes that Osama bin Laden is probably hiding out someplace that's very dark and where there are very few people. So they have begun searching theaters showing the movie Glitter. <laughs> Mariah Carey vehicle, which had come out like one week earlier. And it's a pretty good joke. It's not uh, the best joke of all I time. I like it. Right? But so Jimmy Fallon told that joke and there was a second's hesitation and then a like cathartic, rapturous laugh came out of the audience and it was like, right, that's what we do. We tell dumb jokes about Mariah Carey movies. And, <laughs> and whatever is happening in the world, especially uh, at times of, of national strife and tension and anxiety, the answer when it comes to comedy is well, you just start doing comedy again. It's you, people will go back to comedy clubs and they'll fill up again as they did right after 9-11 and, and TV shows will come out and there will, be, there will be interesting things that happen. Like for example, Ted Lasso came out in June of the first year of this pandemic and it was just exactly what America needed and wanted in that moment. And that, so there will, things will change and shift and, and will evolve like they always do, but like we won't stop wanting funny things and mm -hmm. people will keep doing funny things and eventually it will never go back to exactly what it was. I think that's good. I don't think it should ever go back to exactly what it was because it's a constant endless march of change and progress and everything else. So will it ever be the same? Will we ever enjoy the same jokes? No, I don't think we should. If you go back to an old stand-up set you did from the late 80s, you're not gonna do, wanna do any of those jokes anymore. I've sure, seen no, I wouldn't. I've seen those jokes. I wouldn't do don't those on those the road. <laughs> People pay good money to see you. Why would they wanna hear? Saddam Hussein stuff. No, I, I get that. But the, the point is, is that comedy has all comedy, all of it has an expiration date on it. The minute you tell a joke, a clock starts ticking to the point where that joke will either no longer be funny mm -hmm. or will be revealed to be offensive or unpleasant for some group of as people. As things change and, and Right, and so grow. we should never, the goal should never be, I think, to do the same jokes. The goal should be to do new, more interesting, better jokes that, are, that are, reflect wherever we are now. Right. I, I think that's exactly right, and I really appreciate that. And it's the kind of thing, you know, the other thing I, I, I would be curious about your opinion on is how you think the changing values of society should change what comedians do. Because I'm torn, you know, there's a part of me, I don't know if I'm more comedian than man sometimes, <laughs> where 
you know, we've all gotten so relentless in our criticisms mm -hmm. of each other because we're all aware of what we all think now in a way, you know, Twitter and social media is like, what was the movie Mel Gibson? He, he was like a doctor and he, or no, and he, and he got ESP and now he could tell what- What women want. What women want. <laughs> Sorry. I did not think that movie was gonna come up tonight. Yeah. I, 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 I bring it up at every, uh, <laughs> but that's Twitter. That Twitter is, we all now have ESP. And so that, that you hear that when you do a comedy performance, and there's a live performance, or whether you were writing the jokes for SNL, in the audience, an audience is an organism, it's like a Borg, and you can be killing it, but I can always in an audience find some people that aren't just, just aren't having it. Mm -hmm. Don't like me, don't like the act, don't know why. But now that there's social media, I do know why. <laughs> <laughs> Social media is riding home from the show with the people who didn't like it in the back and just going like, <laughs> trying not to let that affect your work. Yeah. Or affect what you do or affect, you know, we always used to have a joke that it's, it's, Always funny till it happens to your guy. When you made a joke, you know, we made a joke about a Democrat and the audience would always go, hey. <laughs> and he'd be like, mm. Yeah, sorry, man. That's the, I think that's always going to be the problem with comedy because they always say laughter is the best medicine. But laughter is also a toxin because in all, it is in essence provocative. It's part of what it does. It, 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 it's not here to heal you. And it's not here to upset you. It's just here. <laughs> and so that's, I think, the thing that you grapple with as times change. Yeah, I would also say, though, that the, one of the good things about the age we live in yes. is that people who have never been able to express themselves can now express themselves. And that is- Exactly. And I, like, I, I am on Twitter way too much. I tweet way too often. Right. I have at times in my life been like, this is toxic, I'm leaving, goodbye. And then two weeks later, I'm like, I have a joke about Paul Ryan and I really need to get it out of my brain. And if I don't, I'm gonna explode. And I just go back and I fall back into the old habits. Now, I realized many years ago that the problem isn't Twitter. Yes. Problem is me. And so I turned my mentions off and I don't interact with anybody. I don't right. respond to anybody. I don't see the things that pe when people try to troll me or say right. you're an idiot or blah, 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 or your shows suck or whatever. I don't, it's, I'm sure still happening. I don't see it. Now that has its own problems. Part of the problem of the echo chamber universe that we live in is we are now sell we're playing radio stations that only have the music that we want to hear. That has its own pitfalls and dangers. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the expression of of um, of grievance, I think I would rather live in a world where people who have legitimate grievances get to air them and they get heard. Like we used to be in a world where neither of those things were true, where people who had legitimate- Well, people aired them, you just didn't 
they Clearly. aired them alone in their houses. That's right. And, and that is not a good world either. So sometimes when, when I see people complain about the way that the world works now, I understand it, mm -hmm. and, it and I see those gears grinding, and I, I think at times the pendulum has maybe has swung too far in a certain direction in certain ways. I also think I would far rather live in a world where people who have, who have legitimate grievances about structural power who have, uh, who have been marginalized and have never had a voice, those people have a voice now in a, any number of different ways. I think it's better, uh, all things being equal, right. it's better- The than, democratization of grievance. Yes, exactly. Right, right, right. And, and so- I just don't understand, for comedians, when they complain about this idea of cancel culture, or whatever those things, which I, you know, again, that's a whole other conversation of, but we, I make my living talking like, that's what I do. I've done it for a long time. So I, I would be hard pressed to then complain to be like, are you talking to me? <laughs> I mean, basically, that's, that's what we do. I, yeah. I, my, my point is, talking but with grace, you know, I think we all have to realize, like, this is, this is fair game. Like, you know, you can talk about a woke mob that'll come after you for a joke that they think is intemperate to a, a disadvantaged group, or you can talk about a right-wing mob that's gonna come after you because you mentioned uh, that you wanna teach about Harriet Tubman. But <laughs> the, the truth about the world is you really wanna step in some Make fun of BTS. <laughs> uh, Michael Shore, is there anything that you would like to add tonight Philosophically speaking, I feel like uh, in terms of ethics and philosophy and writing a book, I, I would like to, I don't want to put you on the spot for profundity, but is there anything that you would like to leave us with that will change our lives? <laughs> uh, I, I think the essence of this show, The Good Place, and of this book, is that what is important, ultimately, is that you care one way or another whether what you're doing is good or bad. I think the problem with a lot of the people that we see, especially people in power, people who have achieved, who are maybe born on third base, thought they hit a triple, and then retired to their Palm Beach <laughs> state, uh, is that they don't, not only do they not care at all, mm -hmm. they enjoy flaunting the fact that they don't care, right? That, and the path to improvement, if there is such a thing, begins with a very simple decision, which is I'm gonna decide I care one way or another, whether what I'm doing is good or bad, and that means I'm going to try to be better. Knowing that you are trying means knowing that you will fail. You will blow it all the time, you will mm -hmm. step in it, you will make fun of BTS at the wrong moment and have to hide in your house for three weeks, you will uh, cause people pain and anguish and suffering when you did not intend to, and when those things happen, the temptation is to not care because it's like, well, I cared and look what happened. I got punched in the face. And I, the only real conclusion I've come to in all of this stuff, reading all of this stuff and talking about it for years with all the people I've talked about it with, is that the, the only thing you can control is whether or not you care. It's whether or not you care if what you're doing is good or bad. If you, that's, you can actually make that decision and you can actually decide that you're gonna to try to be good and you then maybe have a better chance of learning from the mistakes you will inevitably make. And that is, that's, the, that's the ethos of, of the show, The Good Place, and that's the, that's the ethos of this book that I wrote.
Thanks for tuning in to Metro Focus. Take our award-winning program wherever you go with Metro Focus the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play Metro Focus the podcast. Also available at WLIW.org radio and on the NPR One app. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Schoen Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, and the estate of Roland Carlin.